brought to you from the Badlands of Texas, 360 degrees all the way around the earth, in to your ears. You are listening or you are watching Midnight Radio with me, your host, Gerald Schmimmons. Hello, Fruit Loops. How are you doing tonight? You doing all right? Holy moly, the stuff that we're going to talk about today make your mama blush, makes me blush, makes me want to gag, talking about the gag order with Brian Kohlberg and all the stuff going on with that. We're going to watch that. We're going to be in the courtroom, and guess how, what, guess how they did it? They did it the way they're supposed to do it, and it's kind of the way I like it, because I get all my information here third hand, and now they do too, because they have a jury pool camera where we all have to get our video from the same place. They like to get it and they like to slap their little things on it. My little thing is right here. Right here. Squeak, squeak, squeak. There it is. They put theirs on it too. They don't mind if we use theirs though. By golly, I'm not going to let them touch mine though. I'm going to go over that first. We're also going to give away a hat today. If you watch the Harsh dating game, if you're one of those lucky watchers, and even if you weren't, you're just watching this right now, you can go ahead and go to the Iden Harsh dating game and make a comment there in the comment section. And I'm going to do a drawing for a hat from the comment section. If you make a comment, you're going to be entered in on the drawing. We're going to do that. When? When? I don't know. I'm either going to do it halfway through the show, which is going to be long because I got a lot of stuff. I'm just the end of it, whichever strikes me whatever the hell I remember, to be honest, you know, I'm getting too, I'm getting a little old now. Mr. Schmimmins isn't what he once was. Not that he was ever that great. I'll tell you what is great though. This damn footage I got, and we're going to go ahead and play this right now. Okay. So I'll let you know all I got at the end, towards the end, I have the modern murder stories that are going on, but I have Brian Colberger. We're going to start out with what's going on with him. What's going on with the gag order. And then we're going to go, into emma bailey we're gonna go into wait ethan's mother we're gonna talk about the emma bailey conspiracy theory that was going on and we may or may not debunk that but man i can't i tell you what we can't dig any deeper than i have with emma bailey and i don't think anybody should and i don't even think i'm ever going to hear the name emma bailey after this today and we got Stuff from your girl, Banfield, and we have a serial murderer on the loose. And maybe you can help solve a murder tonight on Midnight Radio. All right, so let me go ahead and get our first video right now. All right, good old LN Long Crime. Here we go. I don't even know where that video is. Actually, let me show this first, and then we're going to go into that video. So we have Idaho murder suspect Brian Kohlberger cites mob justice fears, and because of that is why he wants a courtroom ban. I'm going to play this first and then we're going to talk about it and then we're going to watch what happened in the courtroom today investigators had no weapon motive or visual identification but they were still able to find a suspect in the murders of ford university of idaho college students technology ultimately led to the arrest of brian koberger 
the suspect charged with those stabbing deaths. Investigators pulled cell phone data to track Koberger's movements during the months leading up to the killings. A video clip from a live camera showed two of the victims visiting a food truck. This helped police establish a timeline and track the victim's whereabouts. One of those students had food delivered via DoorDash at 4 a.m. on the day of the murders. Investigators say that helped them narrow down a time frame for the killings, which was within 25 minutes after that DoorDash delivery. Video from nearby the crime scene showed a white sedan repeatedly driving past the home, arriving in the area the last time at 4.04 a.m. and then leaving at a high rate of speed at 4.20 a.m., according to the court documents. An FBI agent who specializes in vehicle identifications examined the video and concluded it was likely a 2011 to 2016 Hyundai Elantra sedan, the same vehicle Brian Koberger drove. A license plate reader caught the same Hyundai Elantra sedan traveling through Colorado a few weeks after the murders. How you doing? How y'all doing today? Body camera footage released by Indiana State Police show a trooper stopping Koberger and his father as they drove cross country to their home in Pennsylvania several weeks after the murders. The two were stopped for following too closely and were let go with a verbal warning. Well, do me a favor and don't follow too close, okay? Oh, All right, thank you. After tracking down the car and the cell phone to Koberger's family home in Pennsylvania, police took DNA from trash outside the home. They found the DNA from a man who lives in that home was 99% certain to be the father of the person who left the DNA on the knife sheath at the crime scene. Authorities have yet to publicly establish any motive or say whether Koberger knew the victims. Police also have not disclosed why the student's fellow roommates did not call authorities and why they weren't alerted until nearly eight hours after the killings. All righty. That was a very good recap of what they say the story is right now. So the man accused of stabbing Idaho Cow is so dreary the way they start all these. Mm. Here we go. In a new court filing, Brian Kohlberger objected to television and social media commentators dissecting his previous video recorded court appearances. His lawyers argue that descriptions of Kohlberger published by online commentators, including Gerald Smimmons here, including ones with terms such as cold iciness or a demon, could prejudice potential jurors. The judge in the case has scheduled a Friday hearing on Kohlberger's motion, and that's what happened today, which we're about to look at. Authorities say DNA evidence left on an eye she found in blah, blah, blah. blah. Got to sum up everything again, I guess. Uh... On November 13th, amid a gag order in the case, online and television commentators have speculated wildly about a possible motive and connection between Kohlberger and his victims. What does Kohlberger's legal team claim in the new filing? Kohlberger argues the heavy coverage threatens his presumption of innocence and constitutional right to a fair trial before a jury of his peers. However much it may help the horrific pain of the victim's families to scream at the system, their alternative mob justice is far worse. It helps nothing to come to court assuming guilt. 
It helps nothing to overcome law in Latah County and kill an innocent man or have a worthless conviction overturned, Kohlberger's attorneys write. They added, as such, these phrases are used to characterize and make determinations about an individual based on limited footage with no regard for the presumption of innocence. The gag order is what limits the information, you dumb assholes. That's to his defense team. I hope you hear that. I hope you hear that. They don't care. They're just doing their jobs, right? Therefore, the presence of cameras allows for the potential that the courtroom will devolve from a place for the victim, society, and the accused to receive justice to a mere spectacle. And and to put this in perspective, guys, they're just talking about the media pool, like we're going to see today. After they meet at court, we all get the same video footage and talk about it. They don't even want you to do that. What is the judge going to say? We're going to find out. And a coalition media wants the judge to relax the gag order in the case, arguing that the public and journalists have a right to more details. After all, is it not the public being the ones that are murdered? We do have the right to know. In separate court filings, multiple reporters attested to their ability to cover the case has been hampered by the wide-ranging gag order and asked the judge to soften it. Uh, what has Brian Kohlberger been charged with? We we know all that. All right, moving right along. Uh, let's look at this video here. All right, here we go. Long crime. Again, this is a jury pool right here. You might notice this picture from our thumbnail. I'll be transporting some good parts. I'm checking the chat room right now. By the way, we'll go ahead and say this. The phone line is open. If you guys want to go ahead and call, you can. The phone number's up there, 325-261-0892. If you have a comment or question, then you can go ahead and call. John, we see you. Well, there's bias in something like this, no matter what. LOL, calling him a demon is a compliment at this point. That won't change anything. Jerry, can we do a poll if we think he's guilty? I guess we could. What a license plate reader, like a freelance one. What? All right. Let me go ahead and play this while I put up a poll.
very much. Please be seated. Well, to me. All right, before we go any further, this show is a conversation with you. That's what I'm going to ask you to go ahead. If you haven't, go ahead and subscribe. Hit that bell so when we go live, you can join the conversation. The phone number is right up there. I want to hear from you. The email is midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com. I want to know whether you think cameras should be allowed in this courtroom, Brian Kohlberger's courtroom for the murder of these four individuals. Do you think that a camera should be allowed? Do you think he's guilty? I want to know. we got a poll right up there now in the chat room, and you can vote there, and we have one coming up, whether or not you think he's guilty. versus Brian Koberger, CR 2922-2805. Uh, we're here for a hearing. Um, on the Rosales family's motion to appeal, amend, and or clarify amended dissemination order that was filed back on February 3rd was delayed because uh, media sought some relief from the Idaho Supreme Court. Uh, there was a delay to find out what the Supreme Court was going to determine. They did it. And uh, this morning, we have uh, the state represented by Mr. Thompson and Mr. Rudley. Mr. Koberger is in the, in the courtroom, represented by Ms. Taylor and Mr. Watson. And uh, I believe the Yes. Yeah, there he is. Let me sit back here, Your Honor. And I believe uh, some of the family is participating, observing on Zoom. So uh, before we get into the arguments, um, I want to address the Gonzalez uh, family um, and all the families, really. Didn't really have an opportunity to do this at the arraignment. Uh, my heart does go out. Those fake ads really drive you mad, huh? The game looks so fun in the ads, but when you download it, it to the families um, and um, the loss to your children is devastating and horrific. I mean, there's no dispute about that. I also want to um, acknowledge and apologize because at the arraignment, I did stumble over a couple of names, Kaylee's name and Raymond's name, and I want to explain that. I was uh, up all night, um, really ill, probably food poisoning, and I was not at full potential, uh, probably also some 
emotion and nerves as I read those names. And uh, I'm sorry, so that's my apology for that. I know some people were concerned about that and wanted to address it. I also wanted to explain uh, a procedure um, at the arraignment that apparently drawn from the media that uh, that some people were con con confused uh, when Mr. Koberger declined to enter a plea. And I, I just wanted to clear that up because I didn't really see any explanation about that in the media. That is Mr. Koberger's right. And uh, All right, so here's something that's very distracting to me. We have the judge, first of all, he started by apologizing about mispronouncing some names, which he did during uh, the their last time they gathered together, you know, in that secret uh, meeting. Also here, he's talking about the disturbing things that he saw online, and he's bringing that in the courtroom. So he's bringing hearsay. You know, things he heard outside, bringing it into the courtroom. That's a little bit disturbing. The way he heard, what he heard journalists talk about, Brian not saying not guilty. And here's what, here's what, I guess they spend their whole lives in Idaho. So him saying, well, that's perfectly normal. That's in Ohio law. Yeah, it might be in Ohio law, but guess what? There's different court laws in different states. And here... In other states, I don't know, maybe the person being accused has the courage to say whether they're guilty or not, and they don't automatically have the ability to play a game and not say anything. I don't know. Let me just go ahead here. Under Rule 11A1 of the Idaho Criminal Rules, this is a quote, if a defendant refuses to plead, the court must left the entry of a plea of not guilty. That is not unusual. But reading the media, it seemed like somewhat mysterious. So I wanted to explain that, uh, particularly to the media. It's a small issue, um, but it's somewhat... Uh... Hey, Judge, if you want to... Uh give out information to the media, lift the gag order so we can see what's going on. Let's try that. You want to educate the media. You want to educate all the people. Lift the damn gag order. Quit playing games. Let me tell you something. Uh, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again, and this is not a threat for me. Brian Kohlberger is a dead man walking at this point, and whether they have this... It's just wild to me that he thinks, or they're portraying the defense is portraying that not having the video of the trial available is going to somehow make him safer somehow give him a fairer trial nobody is going to come into that court and hurt him unless he and he might be unless he is put in solitary confinement for the rest of his life he's a dead man walking if he is found innocent he's a dead man walking all right, this is the reality of it. I don't think anybody sitting in this courtroom can have that reality sink into them. And I hate to say it, and again, it's not a threat for me, but 
I I have my finger in the pole in the water. I can tell how hot it is out here, and it is not good. It is not good. Well, I I think that I have an obligation, just as the media has an obligation, to help to educate the public about the processes that that uh, we are responsible to follow in the courtroom, and. Um, and that's important important for journalists that's also important for uh for the citizens so if you're curious about that you can always find the the, the uh, criminal rules uh on the idaho supreme court website and it's very very easy to read them and maybe get a better understanding all right so that's my speech for today um mr gray come on up And if you allow me just a minute or two to get yeah. started out here. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Craig. Wayfair's got the biggest outdoor selection out there. Get grills, garden. Uh, first, Your Honor, we'd like to um, thank you for apologizing to the victim's family. Um, I think it was an emotional day for them, and uh, they appreciate your apology. I know that they took that part up. Thank you. I would first want to start with the procedural history of this non-dissemination order, if I could. On January 3rd, 2023, the... Sorry, guys, I keep pausing this. There will be a link in the show notes where you can watch this on your own. If you don't want my commentary, this is a show for my commentary. So there you go. Uh, let me go to this comment. I agree 100% about what you said about a, damn, a dead man walking. What makes his rise more over the lives of four butchered young adults? That's true, but I'm not even saying he's guilty. But I'm telling you, there's people that aren't going to let it go that he is. This is like nothing I've ever seen before, and hopefully it's like nothing I've ever seen. Again, he is in very great danger i'm gonna go ahead and play this so we can hear this lawyer and i'm gonna look at the poll the judge marshall ordered uh submitted a non-dissemination order and in that order it applied to parties uh in the action which would then the prosecution the defense and any agents investigators involved in it. after that non-dissemination order was issued i reached out to uh the prosecutor's office to see if i could get Judge Marshall's email for some reason. I don't know if they took it down, but I couldn't find it online. Um, and they informed me that they were not privy to give me that information. <clears throat> um, then on January 13th, um, there was a Zoom call that was requested by Judge Marshall. That Zoom call was requested at 1 o'clock on the 13th. Uh, I was received an email at 12.58 from Judge Marshall's clerk requesting a Zoom call to speak to all interested parties. Uh, the Zoom call occurred at 4 o'clock p.m. All right. Right now, I want to tell you what the outcome is of our poll. It is um, right there. 
92% think that the cameras should be allowed in the courtroom. 7% think that they should not. With only 38 votes, there's a lot more of you watching, guys. I'm going to put another poll up right now. Be sure to participate in that. And if you haven't yet, go ahead and subscribe and hit that bell so you can join in the conversation. If you have a phone call and you want to give us your thoughts about this right now, the phone number is 325-261-0892. And we have a lot more than that coming up tonight on Midnight Radio. <laughs> During that meeting, the judge reminded us, all the parties involved, uh, it was the prosecution, it was the defense, it was myself, it was the attorneys for the victims, families, uh, the attorneys for the witnesses, I believe were there as well, a number of attorneys, uh, and reminded us that her non-dissemination order uh, mirrored that of Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct 3.6. As part of that hearing, and I think it's details here, she talks about the rule applies to all lawyers participating in the Zoom meeting, the state and the defense and all attorneys for the witnesses. When she had that Zoom meeting, and I've requested the transcript from that Zoom meeting and haven't been able to receive it yet uh, from Judge Marshall's court, uh, so we could have a full transcript of what went on that day. But as part of that meeting, I had questioned uh, Judge Marshall regarding the victim's family and whether or not they were allowed to speak to the media based on the fact that she had said all interested parties as well in the, in the initial non-dissemination order. Um, I didn't receive any clarification. I was just instructed to go back to Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct 3.6 as well as uh, I was told and this is in quotes from her Zoom, where they take their duties in that most regard in conducting themselves and advising their clients. I took that as I should tell my clients to be quiet. Um, she reiterated that again in the Zoom call by saying that my, I had ethical duties extracted above and the, and the uh, Iber Rules of Professional Conduct uh, for commentary of Rule 3.6. <laughs> And she reminded me later that lawyers have a responsibility in giving advice to their clients. Um, I disagreed with Judge Marshall on almost every point during that meeting. Um, as well as, if I had known that we were going to be discussing the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct in, those, uh, in that issue, I would have prepared. But only having a three-hour notice uh, to allow me, and not knowing what the subject of the meeting was going to be, didn't allow me to address those issues at that time. Now, after the non-dissemination order in January 3rd and then the January 13th, 2023 uh, meeting, the judge amended the non-dissemination order uh, on January 18th. And she basically repeated the same order, except for, she added, the attorneys for any interested party in this case, including attorneys representing witnesses, victims, or victims' families, as well as parties to the above entitled action. So you can see the difference is that the first one dealt with parties to the case. The second one went way over the top, addressing all attorneys that might be associated with the case or any attorneys that might have an interested party in this case. So that's where we are today. I filed the motion based on that additional language. Now, I'd like to get into some of the issues here. It's very clear that I am not a party to the case and the victim's families are not a party to the case. 
that's very clear through all the case law, as well as. Can I, can I interrupt you? Yes. There's, there's no dispute about that. Okay. Then I, you're not. You're not. Uh, your your clients are not parties. The only parties of this case are the state and Mr. Culver. That's that's okay. and, and so, that's that's clear. That's clear in the in the case law uh, with regard to any victims or victims' families. There are constitutional protections and statutory protections for victims and their families. That's that's well established. So let's get into the actual non-dissemination order itself, how it addresses to me personally as the attorney for the victim's family. Um, this non-dissemination order of all of the cases and all of the motions that were filed, and referencing every case that was listed in this case, none of them apply to a victim's attorney, an attorney representing the victims. The I know we trapped tap case was an attorney uh, speaking about a judge who he was in front of. The good case was a defense attorney that spoke to the media. The Mezabov case was a defense attorney and a prosecutor. The Morrissey case was a defense attorney and a press conference. Barner versus Delahunty was an attorney and a judge, all parties to the case. Cutler was a defense attorney, U.S. v. Cutler. Zao versus Scott was a defense attorney. Irwin versus Dow were the prosecutor's actions and speaking to the media. Shepard v. Marshall, Maxwell is a trial publicity regarding the prosecutor's actions prior to trial. None of those things apply to the victim's family or the victim's attorney in any way. Now, I do agree that the court has the power to control those that are parties to the case and that are involved. Son of a bitch! ...involved in the case in some way. But we have to define that, what means involvement in the case. Part of that is that the judge referred to the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct 3.6, probability. She references that multiple times as the basis for her non-dissemination order in this case and how it might apply to me. If you'll read the first paragraph, a lawyer who participates or has participated in the investigation or litigation of a matter shall not make extrajudicial statements. That is not me. It never has been me. It can't be me because I'm not involved in the litigation. She also says can I, that... Can I, can I ask you a question about yeah. that? Because, I mean, I think the case law uh, is, is quite clear that uh, attorneys who are representing witnesses can be, uh, can be restricted to some degree, partly uh, because they have access to particular information that may not, should not, be shared with the public. Um, and if I'm recalling correctly, um, the state has suggested or has determined that your, your clients are witnesses, potentially. So that's 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 kind of the, and, and the issue right there. there. Go ahead. As part of that is that, let's just make it clear, the Evacuum's family has never been involved in this investigation, ever, from the get-go. When, after Mr. Kohlberger was indicted, we received no information about anything regarding the prosecution. Nothing. 
They wouldn't even tell us that a grand jury was being impaneled for Mr. Coburger. They told us that there was a grand jury that was being impaneled. And common sense, we figured it out because he's the only guy in the, in the county. But they wouldn't even relay that information. They haven't really, really given us any information regarding the investigation of the case. But the most critical part of it is that the prosecution has never, ever interviewed the Gonzalez family. So how in the world would we ever be able to be witnesses in this case? And for what purpose would we be? If you're asking about for sentencing spaces, purposes, that's post-conviction. That's after he's been convicted on the case. Prior to trial, we're not any witnesses. And that falls into completely different statutes. That falls into the restitution statute. It falls into the Vincent statute. I just handled that matter in front of the Lloyd Vallow case, where the judge, I had a motion, the defense did not want the victim's family to appear. And so the judge had to make a determination whether they were immediate family, because it was the grandparents. I'd like to take a minute right now to thank our executive producers for the show, Lady Lisa and B-Rocking. Thank you very much for keeping us on the air. And I would like to thank our producer, Grant, who's no longer in the chat room for some odd reason. Completely different statutes because that was post-conviction. And that witnesses, those witnesses were allowed in the courtroom and were involved in the sentencing aspect of it. Okay? So... We are in a very, very different factual situation here. I realize that some of you might have watched this live today or watched this earlier today, but what you weren't allowed to do is to let people know what you think. You can do that in our chat room right now. You can also call in live right now. The phone line is open, 325-261-0892. That is 325-261-0892, because unlike the court system, we want to know what you think. We want to talk about this together 325-261-0892 if you haven't go ahead and subscribe and hit that like button subscribe and hit that bell so you can join in the conversation whenever we go live we believe you should have a say i'm not asking as a witness to the case which witness to the case they never ever told us in any way how we would be witnesses in this case other than the conjecture that we may have potentially. That's not good enough to stop the free speech of the victim's family, as well as myself. The other thing is that if the victims can say whatever they want, you know, the free speech and that's exempt, why would I not be allowed to say the same thing that they're, they say? My, my understanding is that uh, your clients are not restricted in any way, never have been. Well, I'll give you an example. Is that true? That's right. Well, I agree now, because that's not the tone of the Zoom meeting. Well, we're not talking about the okay. tone. I'm talking about the language of the order. Yes. The language of the order now, because any interested party that asks for clarification, now I understand that they can say whatever they want. And that's correct. But here's the problem. If they said, we think the judge is crazy, would I advise them against that? Absolutely. Thank you. But if I went and said... My victim, my fam the family asked, uh, has said that they think the judge is crazy. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm repeating exactly what they said. <coughs> now, what comes into play is, for our purposes today, is what if I offer up my own opinion? Right? Well, then I, there's, I'm already governed by the Idaho rules of professional conduct. And if I'm glad, I, you're, I'm glad you're acknowledging that. No, well, every, every attorney is, Your Honor. I mean, it's not you. Every attorney is. So, 
graduates are not, but every rule doesn't apply all the time. If I'm talking poorly about a judge, another rule might pop in. 8.3, I think, is what it is, or 8.1. If I'm saying other things that might affect things another way, then maybe the probabilistic. But the probabilistic, I don't even think, applies to me in this anyway. Because if you look at it, it says it applies to a lawyer who is participating or is participating in the investigation or litigation of a matter shall not make extrajudicial statements. And it goes on, highlighted by Judge Marshall, then in paragraph three. <coughs> the rule says forth the basic general prohibition about lawyers making statements that no lawyer knows or should know will have substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing the adjudicated proceeding. And at the bottom of the paragraph, it says this. Rule only applies to lawyers who are or who have been involved in the investigation or litigation of cases and their associates. If I'm not a party to the case, I can't be involved in the investigation or the litigation of this case in any way. So I would argue that the trial publicity rule of professional conduct does not apply to me as well. Help me understand what you think you can't say that you've already been saying. I, I have no idea. I have no idea what you think. You've been on the media and you've, you've uh, had interviews. Uh, so I'm kind of wondering what, what, how do you feel that you you've been uh, restrained in any way uh, with this order? I think you're not seeing the, what, what the point is. But the point is, is that I the court has issued the court has issued a non-dissemination order that restricts First Amendment rights that is overly broad in almost every aspect of it. Anybody that's interested and they have an attorney. When an attorney who's walking down the street could offer up his opinion in any way, it also takes away from the idea, doesn't the court want victims, families, to have representation, to guide them through the legal process? Don't they, wouldn't the court encourage that? That they could explain things and maybe advise them on what to say, what not to say? I mean, I, if you're taking my voice away, you're taking the voice away of everything. The other part of it is this, is that I'm absolutely blown away that the prosecution doesn't agree with me in this case. The reason being is that we, they are representing the victims, which in turn are the victims' families. And I have not seen a poor line of communication in my 22 years of practicing than the prosecution's office and the Gonzalez family. And I think it, it, it stems from, initially, we were critical of the investigation. They, were, they wanted to find the person who did this. That's normal emotions. And then from that point on, it has been, we are the enemy. And that's how we feel in this. And so, me guiding them. Are you looking to change your mood? Well, these are full-spectrum infused oh, gummies from Hello Mood. Hey. I've been trying mood products for about a month. Before we continue here, I want to know. This pisses me off, okay? This YouTube keeps playing, all right, this shit about getting high all the time. It pisses me off because they'll send me emails saying that my content is is uh, not acceptable to some of their damn commercials. Well, you know what? These commercials about getting high, it's all I ever get when I watch something. It's all I get off of my own damn uh shows and it's unacceptable to me so how about that catch me outside youtube 
month now, and all I can say. And then trying to limit my voice and helping them out in some way, and then throwing out a random idea that they may be potential witnesses when they never ever interviewed them in any way. It's just an attempt to shut the attorney up and shut the family up. Is what it is. Because if I had come to you today and said we've given seven interviews, Your Honor, we may be witnesses in this case. We've done all of these things. It may be a different story. We haven't done anything. They haven't interviewed the entire family. So, well, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what's in all the investigation. Obviously, uh, and a lot of us don't know and probably won't know. Well, until the trial. And the other thing. Maybe, well, let me just say this. I think one of one of the potential issues is uh, this is potentially a death penalty case. It hasn't been noticed. But that is uh, a potential, uh, and uh, the families of the victims. First of all, did you notice that the judge has Bart Simpson hair? Second of all, did he say? Did Did you just see what I think I saw? He said this might be, potentially be a death penalty case, and he looked at Colberger and he gave him one of these. He's like. You know, like, yeah, you're going to get it, buddy. I don't know. Just something I noticed. Certainly would be witnesses in that process of sentencing. That's not post, that is not post-conviction, technically, is it? It's, it's the, well, if your goal is fair and impartial jury, right, that's the reason for the non-dissemination order. Well, after the conviction, that goes away. Well, it's also confidence in the, in the, uh, in the process, uh, so I have that job. I have I have a job of protecting and preserving the First Amendment and also the Sixth Amendment. And there is some balancing there. That is why uh, lawyers who have access to information that is not accessible by the public uh, have particular restrictions. That's what this that's what this whole case is is about. In this about. And as an officer of the court, I can tell you we have zero access. Okay, so you're not you're saying that you're that the prosecutor's office has not shared information with your client regarding the facts of this case. No, they haven't. How how things occurred? Everybody's going to have a chance to weigh in on this, and I I just you know I'm you're helping me understand what the issues are. So thank you. But is so that's really the issue here. I mean, and, and it's, this is an important ruling because what you're doing is is this has never happened before, ever has it happened before that a judge, Judge Marshall, has tried to silence the attorneys for victims. Never has it happened that I'm aware of. Would you would you feel more comfortable if uh, there was a more concrete description of? What people could say and what they can't say. I don't think you have the authority to. Well, I think I do have the authority. I, I, well, my argument is is that part of the argument is that. In fact, I know I have the authority to do that. Well, and the authority would be through your fair, the attempt to have a fair and impartial jury that you can control uh, people that are involved in the case. Correct. That's part of it. And we're not involved in the case. Okay. That's, so that is that's hard to accept. But we're not witnesses in the case. We're not involved in the investigation. We're not involved in the litigation. I can't file any motions. I can't subpoena anybody. I can't cross-examine witnesses. I can't do anything. 
So this idea that there's this loose idea that there may be weighing that versus our freedom to speak, First Amendment, is we're talking about your that's right. speech. That's right. Not your client's speech. But that is that's speech. that is part of it though. Well, you know? in your in your memorandum you, you you are suggesting that you also have an independent position that you are representing yourself. I did. It's distinct and distinctive from your responsibility to your clients. That's why the motion is for amending or clarification because there's the clients that have the free to speak. There's me repeating what they have to say. If they said the judge, we thought the judge was crazy, and I said the judge was crazy, I can't be, it doesn't violate the non-dissemination order because I'm allowed to say that. And then there's my independent voice where I said, the judge is crazy, yeah, I think the judge is crazy. That goes into another layer, right? Where it would be, I would be Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct would fall into play, and what I would be doing or what I couldn't do. Not the non-dissemination order, because we're not parties to the case. I'd be governed by the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct if I made those statements, extradite those statements. And I might, may or may not fall under the probability. I would argue that I don't, because I'm not a party to it. I'm not litigated it, I don't have any, any, any information on it, none of those things. So, really, that's where the authority for me... We are being deceived. The border crisis oh, is Bob. not like what we've been told. Behind the five million... My voice would come from the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct, if I did that. And if I made a statement that I thought didn't apply for trial publicity purposes, that would be an argument for another day. But it wouldn't be for you for a contingent. All right, so let's check this out. We have our poll, and the poll is... Ending right now, and the poll is: Do you think Kohlberger will be found guilty of murder times four? Sixty-four percent said yes. Thirty-five percent said no. That's fifty-four votes right now. All right, let's continue here. I would. Let me see. Let me just continue. Court for me, because I'm not a party to the case and I'm not involved in the case in any way. I'm just repeating what my clients say, or I'm just saying my own individual opinion, which doesn't, by the way, makes it absolutely unduly prejudicial. Because what if a guy is on an Idaho bar member, is walking down the street, looks up, sees a television uh, program where the Gonzalez family says, well, we thought the judge was crazy, right? And then all of a sudden, the media is outside, and the interview, and they say, hey, you're an attorney here. What about the judge being crazy? Well, I've been in front of him three or four times, and I, did, I, I would agree with him. You're going to sanction him and contempt of court? You can't. Same as me, because I'm not a party to it. He's not a party to it. He might be governed by the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct by commenting on you, Your Honor, but it wouldn't be because of the judge's non-dissemination order. So how can it not apply to him, but it can apply to me? It can't. Well, the, the case law suggests that uh, because you represent potential witnesses that you have access to information that may not uh, or should not be shared with the public. That's, that's, that's what the case law says. And I would argue this. What, what potential witnesses are we, number one? And what access to information do we have? 
I think the defense has argued that we have some sort of access because I have the clients can tell me whatever they want to tell me, right? Well, that's free speech. They can say whatever they want to me, and I can go off and say whatever I want that they say. Because it's free speech. It's the First Amendment. So you can't... I mean, this non-dissemination order is so broad, none of the case law applies to people that are outside of the defense or the prosecution. That's the point of it. It's obvious to me that this judge has already made up his mind and he doesn't care. It's just easier to say no. That's what I'm getting. What do you think there in the chat room? That's the whole point of a non-dissemination because they have access to it. They have access to the information. Victims, attorneys, families do not. And the idea that we may or may not be a potential witness is enough for your honor. I just can't see that, especially when there's no history of them ever being a witness. And to tell you the truth, the day after they filed that notice, or the day before they filed the notice that we may be potential witnesses, we had just gotten out of a meeting with the prosecutor's office, discussing whatever we could discuss, like our concerns, because that's all we do is go in and talk about our concerns, and they tell us we can't say anything, we can't say anything. We can't say anything. We'll get to it. When we walked up, nowhere in that meeting were we described as being witnesses in this case. But all of a sudden, the next day, they thought we might be, even though they've never interviewed us. So they're throwing stuff in the air that is not justified, and the idea that he thinks maybe might is not enough to regulate my free speech in this as the attorney for the victim's family, because that's what we are. We're not attorney for witnesses, we're attorney for the victim's family. And if the court has any other questions, I'd be more than happy. I understand your position. Sure. Thank you, Mr. Grant. So let me go to the state. I don't know if that's Mr. Thompson or Mr. Rattle. Uh, don't be me. I want to nominate your homage. Certainly. Thank you. If I may, um, uh, yes, Mr. Rudley is actually um, going to be arguing on the motions themselves. But as attorneys, we have a duty of candor to the court. Mr. Gray has made representations to the court that at best are misleading and in a, many ways simply untrue. I need to correct him for the record. The is here, I do not want the public in the way with the impression Speak to that, Your Honor. You'll be able to. 
Thank come you. back in after you hear the other arguments. Mr. Levin, go ahead. Thank you, Your Honor. In Stacey Spencer, the Idaho Supreme Court noted that it is also the duty of the prosecutor to ensure the right to a fair and impartial trial. Under the dictates of Shepard v. Maxwell, the court has a duty to take affirmative steps to address the impacts that um, intense pretrial publicity can have on the case. As noted in Shepard, Nebraska Press Association versus Stewart, and their progeny, an order like the one in this case is an appropriate measure for addressing that duty of the court. As uh, Mr. Boston's experts have noted, attorneys often have information about a case that may not be appropriate for dissemination in the press. Additionally, uh, attorneys carry a greater uh, weight when dealing, uh, appearing on television. For instance, what might be easier for the parties to address is a juror that says, I've seen coverage on the case, but I don't always trust what I've seen on TV, and I can set that aside. What's more difficult is a juror that says, I've seen attorneys for the prosecution, attorneys for the defense, or attorneys for the victims on uh, television talking about a critical aspect of the case. In um, the matter of Gentile versus State Bar of Nevada, that case involved an attorney uh, who held one press conference in 1991 after the indictment of his client. This case, uh, in this case, Mr. Grace repeatedly issued statements and been on television. At minimum, it's insincere to argue that he's feeling bound by the order when it's clearly not abided by. In Gentile, the court noted that the speech of attorneys is subject to less uh, substantial, or it can be regulated uh, by less substantial means. In this case, as we've shown by the affidavit we filed, the Gonzalez families are potential witnesses in a trial, or more specifically, a sentence. The order in this case is not vague, overbroad, unduly restrictive, or not narrowly drawn. It precludes all extrajudicial statements of the attorneys in this case, attorneys for the uh, witnesses, victims, law enforcement, uh, and investigators. The order addresses, uh, if the court were to apply strict scrutiny, the order addresses a substantial likelihood uh, that pretrial publicity poses to the um, integrity of the judicial system and is uh, tailored to ensure that the rights to a fair trial are upheld. As um, we briefed in the case of Levine, the alternatives such as uh, sequestration of the jury or uh, changing a venue aren't going to mitigate the impacts of uh, statements, extrajudicial statements in this case, and are unlikely to do so. Thus, the state contends that the order is an appropriate measure of the court to uphold its duty under Shepard, Nebraska Press Association, and the like. Data science, analytics, machine oh. learning, and AI, these are the skills that he
I was almost glad for that commercial. Mr. Gray's statements that he's not bound by trial court publicity rules or 3.6 in this case illustrate why the order of the court is necessary. After all this, guys, we're going to go up with a summary of what the court decided and what the Supreme Court said. So we would ask that the court uphold the amended non-dissemination order or at most uh, tailor it to um, those statements specifically precluded in
literal rights that permit you certain things that are involved in this case, you're involved in litigation. And therefore, you fall within 3.6 or so. Second, the standard from Gentile is the substantial likelihood of material prejudice. I don't want to get too much into that, Judge. I think that's kind of a Zachary Mead argument. I think that the main thing before the court, as far as Mr. Gray and the family, is just do they fall within this, and then the court to decide what is appropriate. But I would note that given the vast amount of media coverage in this case, the fact that it seems like no matter what anybody says or does, in one way, shape, or form, it will be listed into an attack on the client. We also agree that at this point, the safest thing to do is for everyone to just not be talking to the media and allow statements to be made here where we all get a chance to speak and the media gets all that information. If they still choose to do what it is they've been doing, then that's on them. But we don't have somebody just trying to whip the media into a frenzy and send this case to the bottom squad of others. So that's our main concern. The only other thing that I wanted to address, and the court addressed this a little bit, the reason we stand silent with grand jury indictments is because there's an old arcane rule that says that if you have a grand jury indictment and you enter a plea, you are accepting the validity of the indictment. I've seen prosecutors try to use that in a long time, but we can avoid any possible claims that somehow we can't challenge anything with the indictment by simply standing silent and having the court enter the plea. So just so that everybody's clear, that's why we do that. Does the court have any questions for me? I don't think so, but thank you for that additional education. All right, Mr. Gray, it's your motion, so you can respond to what other Meet the gorilla. Goes to wait there for top grills and gear. I guess the first thing I would want to address is the prosecution's idea that I can allow our clients to speak with the investigators. You'll realize that the day of the incident, I wasn't retained on this case until close to December 5th, which will be more than three weeks after the incident occurred, and they still have no contact as far as investigating our victim's families. So somehow that I precluded that in some way is just not true, Your Honor. And as far as scheduling those things, I'll just leave it at that. The second part is everyone is quoting the Gentile case. The Gentile case is exactly like all of the other cases. It says over and over, it has to be a lawyer participating in the judicial proceedings. It has to be a lawyer who represents a defendant involved with the criminal justice system, a lawyer actively participating in trial, a lawyer who's participating before the courts. It can only be limited if he's participating in front of the courts. None of it applies to me. It seems like you're in the court right now. Because you're the one who brought me in here because of the non-examination. You brought yourself in. Yeah, well. You're the one who filed the motion. I did file the motion because the non-examination order is unconstitutional. I'm just trying to clarify what you just said. Well, this will probably be the only time I'm allowed because I won't have the authority to file any other motions on anything else in this case. Why would you say that? 
Well, because I'm not a party to the case. You can still, I mean, the media is not a party of the case either. Once again, they, well, the Supreme Court has said they have standing to come in to the court and address issues. So, yeah, but that's completely separate. They're not. Well, I know it's separate. Okay. So, I also, I also uh, respect uh, your position in representing the families, victims, or families, victims, excuse me, victim family. And, uh, and I respect that. And, and the mere fact that you have a right, I, I, I'm absolutely positive that the Idaho uh, legislature and the Constitution, when they gave victims rights, didn't, didn't think that that was implementing those victims into the trial in some way. Absolutely positive that wasn't the intention. So, so this idea that if you have rights, then you're involved is just beyond. Um, that being said, Your Honor, Nothing precluded the prosecution from contacting uh, my clients well before I was representing them. They had almost three weeks to uh, contact them. Um, I, I think, don't mark me on this, I think I was retained on December 5th. I think that was the day. I don't have my file in front of me, but it would hold me to it. But I think that was the day. So they had plenty of time to contact my clients and interview them if they were going to be potential uh, witnesses in this case. And since then, every time we have had a meeting, we have initiated that conversation. It hasn't been the prosecution initiating that conversation. So, so are you saying since since you have been representing uh, your clients that uh, the prosecutor or investigators have not asked for interviews? I would say this. In the meetings that I have had with the prosecution's office, I have asked as part of that whether interviewing my clients might be an issue. Would they like to do that in some way? I've offered that up in some way. And they've never taken this up. And maybe a random email here and there that says something and no follow-up whatsoever about it. So this idea that they are going to be witnesses in this case is just an attempt by the prosecution to shut them up as well as to shut me up. And by the way, I, I, I people completely forget about this. All of the information that has been disseminated to the public from the get-go was the mayor, Mark Bentley. Uh, Chief Fry had interviews. Bill Thompson had interviews. The coroner had interviews. All of those people had interviews. We didn't. We didn't until we, we started getting information and started trying to figure out what was going on after they had given interview after interview after interview. That was the purpose of the judge issuing the non-dissemination order, is to quiet them up, not quiet the victims up. They had no control over that investigation from the get-go. Well, that, that order was a stipulation. That's the and, and Mr. Colbert. That's the other thing, though, is that the court, after that Zoom meeting, Judge Marshall incorrectly said that that was stipulated by all parties. I never stipulated to that. I emailed the You're judge. Not a party. Exactly right. I'm not involved in the case. The stipulation was between the parties. So you correctly stated who the parties are. So we would ask. But you, you were suggesting that 
that it was entered to, to, to shut down the prosecutor's office. Why would they That's find, what you just said. I, I do think that part of the, uh, that was part of the process, is that they understood that their, their investigation was getting out of hand. Too many people were talking in their investigation, and that's why they stipulated it. Yes, I do. When you say they, you mean the prosecutor's yes. office. Yes, yes. All right. Do you want me to give you a final, or do you? Go, go, go fight okay. me. You, you go. We're not a party to the case. You're very aware of that. I have the right to to repeat what my clients say uh, to the media. I also have an independent right uh, governed by uh, the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct regarding those individual rights versus my own opinions. But those opinions, I don't firmly believe, would fall under the, the um, publicity uh, rule on the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct because I'm not litigating it or part of the litigation. And the reason those things are in place are because people that have real privy information regarding prosecution and defense, which I don't, which my clients don't in any way, it shouldn't have brought me up. Thank you. Thank you for All right. All right. Well, go. I'm not going to issue an, a decision today. I'm going to issue a decision right after this. We're going to do the drawing for the hat. If you saw the Einen Harsh dating game, if you made a comment there below it in the video, I'm about to push the button and it's going to pick the winner for a Midnight Radio hat after Judge Judge judges. Uh, I'm going to issue a written decision. Uh, there, there is a lot So, uh, anything else we need to address before I... All right, that's it. That's really all there is. And let me see what else I have here. Already played that, June 8th. Mob Fears. Mm-hmm. All right, that's it. We're waiting for the answer. All right, back to me. All right, let's do that drawing. All right. All right, here we go. Dude. Actually, I, I hold on. Oh, damn. This is the drawing music now. How about that? All right. All right, YouTube comment picker. We're doing a drawing for a hat. If you commented on the Enan Harsh dating game. Which about that, uh, for those of you that want to know the Enan Harsh dating game, you're wondering, uh, did they go on a date? Am I going to find out about it? There's people going, there's people leaving. That's fine. You're going to miss a good part about him abated. That's fine. No, well, apparently bachelorette number three didn't want to Go out on a virtual date with Enan Harsh. That's what I was told. So you're not going to get an update to how they how their date went because there wasn't a date. Okay, but that still means you guys can have a hat. Let me make sure I get the latest ones right here. All right, here we go. I will include replies to comments. 
exclude x add extra entries no all right number of winners one eight plus two is ten we want to get youtube comments and the number of comments are 46 all right well let's pick one and the winner is the winner is buttercup buttercup congratulations you won i'll put a link there for you wow anyone home knocking on the head wow buttercup won this is probably some random troll who's just walking by and crop dusted it crop dusted us all buttercup you have 24 hours to contact me via my email midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com that is midnightrad.io101 on gmail.com and say hey i won i will put a message underneath your comment wow anyone home knocking on the head i don't know you have 24 hours after you get my comment. And if you don't, then we'll come back here and give away your hat to somebody else. So booyah. Let's go to our next our next story here. Shall we? There it is, everybody. Buttercup one. Buttercup one. Buttercup. 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 All right. So I'm looking at the objection to media motion to vacate the amended non-dissemination order. And I do not want to read this, especially since we spent 58 minutes watching it live. So we're not going to do that one. But what we are going to do is we're going to go over the video footage right here from the Today Show of Ethan Chapin's mother saying that she wanted no part of going to that trial. Let's check it out students who were killed last fall cope with this unimaginable grief they are also finding touching ways to remember and honor their loved ones in a moment we're going to talk to ethan chapin's mom stacy but first a closer look at the case and their tributes more than six months have passed since the murders at king road when Ethan Chapin, his girlfriend, Zanna Kernodal, and best friends, Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonsalves were found stabbed to death in this house near the University of Idaho campus. A tense manhunt and weeks of painful waiting for the victims' families followed before police arrested their suspect in late December. Brian, Brian Koberger was pursuing his PhD in criminal justice at Washington State University, just miles from the scene of the murders. Investigators say DNA evidence, cell phone records, and video surveillance link him to the scene that night. Koberger's trial is set for October, the judge entering a plea of not guilty for the four murders after Koberger declined to enter one himself. Ethan Chapin's family has watched from afar while holding close their memories of a beloved son and brother. He loved everybody and everybody loved him. Everybody wanted to be around him. Ethan's parents, Stacy and Jim Chapin, are honoring him through a foundation named Ethan's Smile. It gives scholarships to local students to attend the University of Idaho. That kid has touched more lives. We say in our family, if we touch as many lives as he did in his 20 years, this world would be a better place. Ethan was a triplet. His two siblings still attend the university. This May, graduation ceremonies were bittersweet as the school awarded Ethan a posthumous certificate. And now, Stacy Chapin has written a children's book about Ethan called The Boy Who Wore Blue. A portion of the profits will also go to the foundation, Ethan's Smile. Okay. 
and Stacey Chapin joins us now. Good morning to you. Good morning. It's hard to watch those images of your beloved boy. How are you doing? It's hard. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's good though. I mean, I, all things considered, we, we're doing very well. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he was a triplet. He has a brother and sister. How yes. are they doing? Uh, I, Jim and I couldn't be more proud of them, to be honest with you. They went back to school. They had a wonderful, they finished successfully this semester. Um, and now they're back at work in a place that they love. And we've called summer home for a long time. So they're in a safe, great environment and they're doing amazing. I, I'm so proud of them. I, it's amazing. I think people are about to find out what an extraordinary family you have, yeah. Stacy, mm -hmm. and what an extraordinary boy Ethan was. You've written this book. It's called The Boy Who Wore Blue. <laughs> yes. Tell me about writing it and, and what made you decide to write this story? Um, <clears throat> it started with um, my best friend sent me a news release that was um, that all right, everybody, I'm not going to play the whole video. You can check that out below this video in our video description. You can click on that and you can watch it on your own. She says that her and her family are not going to go to the trial of Brian Bicknose Colberger because it's too heartrending. All right. Let's go over this. You guys have been waiting for the Emma Bailey. And I kind of, I didn't go over that first. I went over this first. So those people that tuned out are really missing something. That's all right. Those of you that are here, go ahead and hit that like button. Go ahead and subscribe and hit that bell. I say that because if I don't, you won't. But I really want you to join in the conversation. Phone number 325-261-0892 if you're so inclined. Now, here we go. What am I showing you right here? I'm showing you the real let me let me get let me go in right here uh let me uh make this full screen so you can see it better this is the driver this is the one that delivered jack in the box to that house in uh, moscow idaho that fateful night this is him and we're gonna go over our, our video footage of it i'm convinced this is him his name is aaron let me read it on here and we're gonna i'll play the video for you of the man while he was doing the investigation of this i'll put a link in the show notes it was not emma bailey and we're gonna show you what emma bailey's what's being said about emma bailey and who emma bailey is and how she is was indeed connected to that moscow idaho house this says DoorDasher. His name is Aaron. He likes to say he can't find the address of the customers so he can eat the food. He canceled the order for us to have to remake it for another DoorDasher to take. Tired of it. Please keep an eye on, on it from him. This is one of the jack-in-the-box workers uh, showing this guy who, who it is. And we're going to show you the video right now. And uh, check this out this is from thou shalt not kill true crime uh and i'm going to put a link to him in the show notes and let me play this video this is him actually in the jack-in-the-box in moscow idaho as they go over who really delivered to that house on that day found out 100 confirmation and i have the recording of who the doordash driver is here it is well it's good okay, so his name's aaron the doordash driver where can i like what does he look like? 
<laughs> this is the only picture of him I have. He's a big guy. Okay, hold on. I don't can think I he can I take a picture of your yeah. screen? I don't think he bored at us here no more. Like, didn't you get him yeah. off the route? Well, yeah, because he was eating the food. Yeah, yeah eating your food. Yeah, he was saying okay. that he couldn't Sorry, find man. the house and then we'll cancel the yeah, order. Right. And keep yeah, right. Right. Yeah. So this is the DoorDash driver yeah. that night. He's the one that, well, at least he was telling us he was. Yeah. Okay. And it was like, it was right after it happened. Are you a reporter or? Well, see, guys, that's why you hit the pavement and you go ask the questions yourself. All right. I'm just going to play that part of it. I suggest, I do suggest you watch the whole video. It's very interesting, very informative. Do I believe that that was a real DoorDash driver, not a woman? Yes, I absolutely do. If you watch the rest of the video, perhaps you will too. There'll be a link in the description below. All right. All right. Now, who is Emma Bela? Thank you, Annabelle Stealth. Appreciate it very much. That's amazing. All right, who is Emma Bailey? And where did this whole Emma Bailey conspiracy come from? All right, this is Emma Bailey. I got a picture of her eating a pizza pie. And I, I do wanna make a public statement that if you have an Instagram, uh, probably a YouTube, maybe Facebook, uh, don't have pictures and videos up there that make you look like an asshole. If you're going to get arrested and they're going to go through your stuff, I mean, you're going to look like an asshole. I mean, so I'm going to go through some of her stuff today so you can see who she is because she still has it up and it's public, but um, she looks like an asshole. Now I'm thinking of right now, if I go back through my all my YouTube stuff, do I look like an asshole? I probably do look like an asshole, but do what I say, not what is I as I do. It's one of those type things. That's the American way, isn't it? All right. So who are these people and why do we give a damn? Well, first I'm going to show you this. Where am I at? All right. So two people in custody after man dies of apparent overdose in uh, an apartment there. Now this is why she came up on the radar and then she was looked into and found that she has a connection uh, there's one YouTuber that had a theory that went viral, and then the truth came out later. So two, this was March 22nd. Two people were arrested on drug offenses after law enforcement connected them to the overdose-related death of a 22-year-old man. Officers with the Centrilla, am, am I saying that right? Centrilli, Centrilla, Centrilia Police Department responded at about 9 a.m. March 21st, report that a man who was found by his friend in an apartment in the 3000 block of Borst Avenue was unconscious and not breathing, according to the news release. According to the friend, the man was visiting from the University of Idaho in Moscow and had attended a party in Seattle the night prior where he overdosed. He received care at Harview Medical Center before he was discharged at about 2 a.m. and picked up by the friend who lives in Centrilla. The friend told law enforcement the man went to sleep and stopped breathing shortly before the friend called 911. The man's official cause of death has not been released. When a preliminary investigation revealed illegal drug use was involved in the man's death, they launched a controlled substance homicide investigation according to a news release due to the suspicion of fentanyl being involved detectives requested assistance from uh, the joint narcotics enforcement team because of uh let's just skip that 
is bad. While law enforcement officials suspected fentanyl was involved, the two people arrested Tuesday identified as Emma Bailey, 22 of Moscow, Idaho, and Demetrius R. Robinson, 36 of Tacoma, who is her boyfriend and aspiring rapper, are accused of delivering cocaine to the man shortly before he overdosed at the Seattle party. At the request of detectives, the man's friends sent a social media message to Bailey, and we're going to go over her social media today, and attempted to ruse her into a meetup to purchase more narcotics, but Bailey allegedly advised she was not willing to sell, that the man had died in D's arms, and the man needed to get healthy. A law enforcement located Bailey and Robinson at a residence in Des Moines, Idaho. They reportedly found some loose white powder substance, several hundred dollars in cash of small bills, uh, assorted sizes of small baggies, bottles of white powder, vitamins and empty capsules and a bag sold for the purpose of self-loading. Bailey and Robinson were booked in the Lewis County Jail about 9 p.m. on Tuesday. They were charged with one count of conspiracy to commit the violation of the Uniform Control Substances Act. Bell was set at $100,000. All right. Continuing this story here. Now, how? what is the theory? How does this relate to Idaho? Well, let's go over that right now. This is what's being said. This was the rumors. This was the rumors on the YouTube streets. It's crazy-ass place. Emma Bailey arrested. Who is the best friend of Miss Bailey? Ashlyn Couch. Who is Miss Couch? The infamous sixth roommate. Just another weird rabbit hole. That is true. This is what some of the people said. I saw this posted elsewhere where do you see that this arrested woman was friends with a sixth roommate i asked this question was told because they went to the same school and lived close by they must be friends where's the connection to the sixth roommate if they were friends what does this mean to the big picture that they knew a drug dealer i never saw a connection between them except for the same school and maybe some sorority all right let me see what else i got here I am missing something. Hold on. There's a lot I'm not missing. All right, what do we got? So this is Emma Bailey's Facebook, or uh, what is this, Instagram. Like I said, uh, it says she's an aspiring model. Her boyfriend was 36, and he was an aspiring rapper. This photo right here is kind of interesting because this is when her and her boyfriend first started to get together. And I showed you her being arrested in a previous video. And that's all it's going to show me unless I join Instagram. But there's also TikTok. And uh, we have such things like this. And of course, you don't want to listen to it. No. And let's see what else do we have. I can't. Oh, here we go. Sleep, bus, club, another club, another club, plane, next place, no sleep, no fear, nobody believed in me. 
no sleep. Yeah, one more time. Bus, club, another club, another club, plane, next place, no sleep, no fear. Nobody believed in me. All right, let me stop that. Who? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Here, check this out. No, we don't. Do you guys want Here's our YouTube. You know, a lot of, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me, everybody. But who the hell is Emma Bailey? Well, there's. I think it was uh, Truth and Transparency that bit that had a big video about her theory about Emma Bailey. I don't know what that is. You're going to have to go back and find it yourself. But what I do have is this video, which I'll show you right now. Check. You guys want to see some more. All right, do you guys want to see some more Emma Bailey videos? Is that it? Emma is the informant. Another club. Oof, there we go. All right, so let's go back here. Check this out. This is how, this is the arrest, not arrest. They had a call. Is that full screen? Oh, my eyes are crossing. All right, let me set this video up. So this is cop cam footage of a noise complainant. Where? The Idaho Four House. And guess who's there? It's girl Emma Bailey. So this video it shows her. Her there when the cops get there, and also her being arrested. And it shows you that, well, same girl. Who lives here? Um, uh, where's the left? You don't know who lives here? No, okay. no, I don't. We're just here for a noise complaint. Uh, so, Deputy Miller Sheriff's Office. And there she is. Registration. In the arrest video. Reason we're chatting is running the red light. Yeah. Oh, is it red? Emma Colbert, I mean, Emma Bailey. Hmm. Hmm. Mm hmm. Who lives here? Um, uh, we're not actually sure. Do you, know you don't know who lives here? No, okay. no, I don't. We're just here for a noise complaint. Uh, Hello, Deputy Miller Sheriff's Office. Hello. Driver's license, vehicle registration. Booyah. Reason we're chatting is running the red light. Yeah. Oh, My, was it red? Mine was green. So she, that she was there in that house. That is what. The truth is, you know, so there you go. There's some truth that goes into that. You guys want to see some more videos? You guys want to see some more Emma Bailey videos? Uh, 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 no, no, you don't. Oh, yes. I have to go back to this. Der me. So. Two people allegedly connected to the March overdose death were released days before scheduled trial. The judge let them off. Did you did you know about that? Somebody asked, is she still in prison? No, she's not. After about two months in jail and five days before they were to face trial and charges related to the overdose death, two suspects were released from Lewis County Jail on Thursday. This happened a few days ago, actually. It's been about a week after a judge dismissed their cases. The co-defendants, Emily Bailey, 22, of Moscow, Idaho, and Demetrius R. Robinson. I can't remember what his name was on Instagram. I think it was like 
I don't know, DJ uplifty pants or I don't know, motivational DJ or anyway, they were each charged in March with one count of conspiracy to commit violation of the Uniform Control Substance Act. And they were both. On Thursday, March, May 25th, the Lewis County Prosecutor's Office filed motions to di dismiss the cases against Bailey and Robinson without prejudice, meaning the cases can be refiled in the same court of law. Let me read that, meaning the cases can be refiled in the same court of law, but they were dismissed. The hearing where Judge Jolie Yeager heard mayor's dismissal motions was scheduled as a trial confirmation hearing for the two co-defendants ahead of the May 30th trial date. The trial has since been canceled. In the written motions, the prosecutor's office stated the dismissals were based upon the subjoined affidavit of counsel, adding, in the interest of justice, your affidavit respectfully requests the court grant the motion for a dismissal without prejudice. The specific reasons for asking the cases to be dismissed were not clarified in the public court documents. Of course they weren't clarified. This is Idaho. Bailey and Robinson were arrested March 21st as part of a joint narcotics enforcement team investigation into the overdose death of the 22-year-old man. The co-defendants were accused of delivering cocaine to the man who was visiting from the University of Idaho in Moscow shortly before he overdosed at a party in Seattle. He received care at Harborview Medical Center for the overdose before he was What? Hold on. The co-defendants were accused of delivering cocaine to the man who was visiting from the University of Idaho, Moscow, shortly before he overdosed at a party, okay? He received care at Harborview Medical Center for the overdose before he was discharged at about 2 a.m. and picked up by a friend. What the hell? Then the friend told law enforcement the man went to sleep and stopped breathing shortly before the friend called 911. Okay. Before their release, Bailey and Robson had been in custody on $100,000. So, so he overdosed, then went to the hospital, released from the hospital, then he died. Okay. I'm glad we cleared that up. All right. Emma Bailey, everybody. So I was, uh, I was talking to you guys before the show started and someone said, well, they must have told where they got their cocaine from and that's how they got off. Lord almighty. I hope they didn't. That's never a good thing. Maybe it's for some, this is a case we've been uh, going over and this was the Nashville shooting. Stay with me guys. I got a lot of crazy stuff coming up, but this is an update. Trans Nashville uh, school shooter Audrey Hale's parents will give manifesto to the families of students at the school where she massacred six people. A lot of people are upset that this isn't being made public. Said a manifesto found by investigators after the mass massacre will be handed to the families of students at the school. The pledge make public during a court hearing on Thursday comes amid an ongoing legal battle over whether the writings by hell who killed three children and three adults at the covenant school, March 27th should be made public. 
Lawyers for the victims' families and the school have argued against the release of the so-called manifesto, but others, including some media outlets and the National Police Association, say it should be published. Hell 28, a trans man and former student at the school, detailed how she spent months planning the atrocity. Well, at least we know that. We know that, hey, she detailed months of her getting ready, or him. At the hearing about the issue on Thursday, Attorney David Rabin, who represents Hell's parents, said legal ownership of the documents will be transferred to the families of the school students. Raven said the paperwork will be completed next week. The documents, which were recovered from Hell's home and car, are still held by Nashville Police Department, and a judge will ultimately decide if they can be made public. It's not clear what impact, if any, this will have on the decision to make the documents public or whether it is a largely symbolic gesture by Hell's family. There's a lot of people that think those writings should be made public. There's people that don't care, and there's people that think it should be. I'll tell you what, let's put a, let me put, try to make a coherent poll. All right. Let me end this other poll. Start a new poll. Hoist a new poll right up there. You guys are into polls and then we'll go over to some of these other crazy stories i got i saved the best stuff for last this one i want to know do you think the manifesto should be made public yes or no i don't think you get get more simpler than that of course i thought that before Man walks up to mother and daughter shopping at South Carolina Walmart, and he shoots the 13-year-old girl. Have you guys heard about this story? Let's go over it now. He shot her randomly. The shooting happened at the Walmart store in Aiken, which is about 15 miles from the Georgia border. The Aiken County Department of Public Safety said they were called to reports at around 7.30 p.m. A witness said that the shooter walked straight up to the victim and shot her. She was with her mom. She was actually looking at a pair of shorts. And out of nowhere, a guy just walked up and shot her. And it actually went through her arm and into her abdomen. Police arrested 32-year-old Stephen Foreman, who they said has no relationship to the victim. The Augusta Press identified the victim as Ashton Rickard. Her aunt, Jamie Hammonds, said she was shot at point-blank range and has already had one surgery. Hammond said on Facebook she may need more surgery. According to Rickard's mother, the bullet broke her daughter's arm and is lodged in her daughter's back. That is horrible. Foreman has been charged with attempted murder and possession of a weapon during the commission of a crime. Police said they have not determined Foreman's motive. What do the comments say about this? Mental health is an issue that truly needs to be addressed. Closing psychiatric hospitals nationwide wasn't a wise decision, and handling individuals identified with a history of mental illnesses requires special protocol, especially by law enforcement. Never should have happened. He should have been locked away after his arrest a few years ago. The family needs to sue everyone involved with him being let out on the street after less than two years from his case of holding three people at gunpoint and in 
2021 pleaded guilty to two counts of pointing and presenting a weapon in January and was sentenced to mental health court. I guess they just let him go. I've owned guns for over 30 years. These days, I'm in agreement that a psychological test and firearm safety training must be implemented for all that want to own firearms. I've seen some very unstable people at the range. They have no clue about gun safety. All right. I told you that we were going to bring in Banfield. And we are after this commercial. Scientific, but I did a poll around New York. I did a poll too. About the con- Grush sat down with investigative journalist Ross Hart, who is reporting for News Nation on the bombshell whistleblower complaint filed with Congress and the Intelligence Community Inspector General. According to the complaint, in July 2021, Mr. Grush confidentially provided UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena related classified information, to the Department of Defense Inspector General. At that time, Mr. Grush communicated classified information about the improper withholding and or concealment of classified material from the U.S. Congress by certain IC elements. News Nation has confirmed Grush's credentials, but he says he can't show us the proof of the alien craft for national security reasons. In a somewhat frightening revelation, Grush claims the non-human species may not be friendly. I've been told that there have been attempts to bring down craft that we've acted offensively against non-human craft. There have been instances and there are uh, certain techniques. Have human beings been hurt or killed by a non-human intelligence? Hey, where the hell's Graham? We got we got an Australian newsman right here and we have no Australian. Well, I can't get into the specifics because that would reveal uh, certain US classified in, uh, operations. Uh, I was briefed by a few individuals on the program that there were um, malevolent events like that. Grush says he has to be careful about providing detail. He shared this letter with us from the Department of Defense, giving him permission to do the interview with News Nation. It says the interview questions are approved. For- what do you guys? What do you guys think about this? What do you guys think about this? Now, the funny part is, I've heard about all this before, exactly to the T. I'm I'm debating whether or not to put a link to it for you because this happened in 97, all right? And exactly what this man is saying, uh, the, the U.S. government had three aircrafts, and the interesting part about the aircrafts is two of them were found in ancient ruins, so they'd been there for like hundreds of thousands of years. And they could get them running, but they barely understood how they worked, and they didn't have the technology to uh this is something I've heard for years, but personally, here's how I feel. I don't give a shit. We have all, what about aliens? At the end of the day, I'm still here. They're not going to take Jerry. They're not going to take Gerald Schmimmons out for a ride. I'm still going to be here. You guys are still going to be looking around here on YouTube. I mean, what does it matter to you? All right. I don't know. Art Bell was talking about this. Uh, I can't remember the name of the guy. Um, I'll look it up while the rest of this is playing. Actually, I'll show you that other interview from 97. Um, I don't know, just kind of what the way, crazy stuff. All right, let me go ahead and continue this. Brian Inton, everybody. I got more stuff. Uh, I, I got some more stuff um, relating to this and the government covering up aliens. Um, there's also a story about three of the largest catfish in recorded history being caught within the last week. One is 
caught in Kansas City, one's in Pennsylvania, and one is caught in, um, where was it, Egypt? For public release, however, this approval does not include any photograph, picture, exhibit, caption, or other supplemental material not specifically approved by this office. Our concurrence for release does not imply DOD endorsement or factual accuracy of the material. Grush says the United States is not the only country that has encountered non-human intelligence. He says our geopolitical rivals have their own crash retrieval programs. We're in a competition with their adversaries to understand this. And it's a, it's a multi-decade Cold War that uh, has been under our nose for so long. And, you know, there is no good way to level the playing field and hold other nation states accountable if they're doing unethical or illicit uh, activity as it relates to this subject. And I think the obtuse secrecy is actually putting us in a very dangerous position where uh, a country might make a breakthrough. Let's say we, um, it's an adversary of ours. And it is so destabilizing. The secrecy is the main reason Grush says he is coming forward. He's concerned Congress is being kept in the dark. And it's a matter of national security. This is not a question I had on my bingo card um, <laughs> last last week. It is not my sweet spot. Uh, although I am a, a defense appropriator, I am part of of classified briefings. Uh, this is nothing uh, that has come up. I saw the report. It sounds fascinating, um, but uh, if there's anything there, there we got to we got to investigate. Just like we would investigate a foreign country that has a balloon over our sky. And again, Chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, says they do intend to have hearings on UFOs. And we just learned the committee confirming that they are in the preliminary stages of uh, getting those hearings together. And regardless of whether you believe David Grush, this really is an emerging area. You know, Congress has been looking to this in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, and clearly, based on what we've seen today, they're they're taking this seriously. They want to look into it. So oh so many thoughts so many thoughts so many thoughts first i'm gonna say this before i continue on a lot of people don't give an ass about ufos i can tell by us losing about half the audience here but let me tell you this about ufos you cannot build a ufo and send it out and get it back in your lifetime because the faster you go the farther you go in order for the people who are sent on there to still be alive you have to go really fast and that slows down time to everything but those being those beings that are traveling on that object. So you send it out and it's been, I don't know, a year, two years, or maybe six months to them in real time. They come back and it's been 500 freaking thousand years. All right. This is real life mathematics. This is real life physics. This is how it works. So the only reason you, if you had the technology and the fuel to do that, the only reason you would send that out is if your whole civilization is leaving and then never reporting back to Earth or whatever planet you're from. Or two, those objects that are being seen are not extraterrestrial. Those UFOs are from Earth and they were sent from an earlier time. They've been gone for weeks, but it's been hundreds of thousands of years and they're returning. So they're from an earthly origin. If you guys want to know more about this, I'll put a link there and I'll put it in to the, uh, it's more of a time traveling thing. I'll put a link in the description below because Art Bell did a show with Bob Lear and Bob Lear talked exactly the same thing that this guy from the government, because we can believe him, right? 
is coming out and saying now is this new information that they allowed him to say. Again, they allowed him to say this. Why? I don't know. But again, they're never going to give Gerald Schmimmons a ride. So why should I care? Right. But check this out. This is what happened. I could show you this. This is from The Guardian. This is hitting everywhere, uh, saying that, hey, there's UFOs. Claims that they have intact alien vehicles. Oh, wait. Oh, 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 yeah. Check this out. I think it's Banfield. Banfield. David Grush says the government's lying to you. He does. And before you laugh, I'm actually oh, talking oh. about some pretty far oh, out stuff. Way out, man. I just had some gummies. I mean, uh, all right. So I got some Banfield. Then after this, I have an incident that happened a few days ago in Las Vegas, and I have evidence the government covered that up. So we'll talk about this on the flip side of Banfield. Like really far out stuff, like covering up the existence of UFOs. Once again, before you oh, laugh, yeah. David Grush is no joke. He is an Air Force veteran. He is also a former member of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Okay, you got to be pretty smart to be there. Part of the Pentagon, okay? He says he has seen evidence of secret crash retrieval program, a secret crash retrieval program that's been hidden for decades. Crashes of UFOs. He says he's even retrieved bodies of other species, or at least he's seen the evidence of that. This is big, weird stuff, right? From a big guy, he's whistleblowing now. He's saying this is stuff that, you know, public needs to know about, Congress needs to know about, shouldn't be kept secret. And so this is what he told uh, journalist Ross Colehart, who's reporting for News Nation. Take a look. You are saying to the human race, for the first time, an official intelligence representative at a high level from the US government is saying publicly, we are not alone. We're definitely not alone. Absolutely, the data points empirically that we're not alone, yeah. Do we have bodies? Do we have species? Of well, naturally, um, yes. when you recover something that's either landed or crashed, um, sometimes you encounter um, dead pilots. And uh, believe it or not, as, fan as fantastical as that sounds, it's true. Okay, uh, Grush filed a whistleblower complaint, like I told you, and this is what he told This is interesting, this is a comment from the chat room. The fact that they begin to talk about these things as real means it's probably really, really much worse than we are imagining. You know, that's absolutely right. I almost think, feel like we could expect something major next week. Actually, this is very true because this came out first in the incident in uh, the incident in Las Vegas we're about to talk about happened. And, then in Vegas should have you worried. At first, I glanced over and I'm like, ah, nah, nah. And then I thought, oh, shoot. Told News Nation, uh, there is a sophisticated disinformation campaign targeting the U.S. populace, which is extremely unethical and immoral. Department of Defense has released a statement that reads in part, to date, the AARO, which is the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office in the Pentagon, has not discovered any verifiable information to substantiate claims that any programs regarding the possession or reverse engineering of extraterrestrial materials have existed in the past or exist currently. 
AARO is committed to following the data and its investigation wherever it leads, which leads me to Ben Hansen. He's the host of Discovery Plus's UFO Witness. Ben Hansen, what is your read on all this David Rush business? This is uh, quite amazing, actually. I was um, uh, attending a UFO conference this morning when this broke, and uh, thank you for covering it. This is a bombshell. We, we've had whisperings that uh, these whistleblowers are going to be coming out, that uh, uh, the select committees uh, in Congress are, you know, kind of floored at what they're hearing. But this seems to be kind of like a, a pre-show to what might be coming in the next hearings, because this was unexpected. And uh, Grush comes forward, his credentials check out. I've been talking to multiple people. In fact, um, those who worked with him at Space Force, he is the real deal. And for him to come out now and the position that he had uh, in, in gathering these reports from those involved in the crash retrieval programs and to come out now with pre-authorization from the DOD to speak on this matter, uh, we're all kind of scrambling to it's, figure out why. Why now? What's going on? Why, right? So he said non-human pilots have actually been recovered. All right, here's what I don't believe. I don't believe that he retired and he decided, hmm, I'm going to go and talk about this unless he has a book coming out. And uh, let me clear this with the DOD. Now, I do know how the process of clearing something with the DOD is before. I mean, I know what that process is. Um, I don't believe that happened in this case. I believe what happened is they, he was sent to talk about this. That's my opinion. Uh, and that's really about probability, really. Covered from some of these wrecks. I don't understand what the value in keeping the lid on this for days, years, decades would be. I, I would think that we would need to be readied and prepared and maybe even allied um, around the world if that's the case. What is the purpose of keeping it under wraps? Well, and, and here's the, the next thing, right? Because we're all talking about, um, we would love to hear, uh, most of us would like to hear all the truth, have it laid out before us. but. Um, you know, I, I also work as a professional crisis and emergency okay. manager. And one of the big problems, I was um, doing research at Georgetown University exactly on this, is that when we're, um, you know, thinking about how great it would be to know this knowledge, you have to remember, this is basically an existential crisis. We're, we're shifting people's realities, and a lot of people are not going to take this well. And we need to be very careful. So if there is a plan in place, which I highly doubt, um, those in, in power need to stay ahead of the game. If they don't do it correctly, we could have what we call cascading effects. And uh, th this could be detrimental, I think, to society because of um, we saw kind of a, a little bit of that in COVID when uh, reality kind of hit us you know, pretty strong and quick. We're still waiting for reality to hit us after all the bullshit that they fed us on that. But hey, a few weeks ago, we had a man on here named Jim Wilhelmson. You guys remember that? It was about the hollow earth theory. If you haven't, man, there's a lot of you that watch this Idaho 4 stuff. You don't go look at the other videos. And I just interviewed a man um, from the Murder Accountability Project. Check that one out. That was awesome. Only a hundred and some of you guys check that out. Jim Wilhelmson, the hollow earth theory. He was talking about his experience of being abducted by UFOs and who he thinks are really behind the ufos he believe i think he believes they're demons and they go together or they work together check that out some crazy stuff i mean come on now come on man check it out and so um it, it, it's uh anyone's guess though whether the government really has a plan for this or not 
Okay, Ben Hansen, I need you to clear your schedule because as this continues to move up the chain and into Congress, um, I'm going to be calling on you for some help. Oh, yeah, she's going to whip out that burner phone. Oh, they're smiling. She's never going to have me on her show. Ledge, thank you for this. Thank you for watching. Well, thank you, Ashley. Thank you very much. Las Vegas police. Respond to home after 911 call claims UFO with aliens crash his backyard. I know what you're thinking. Gerald Schmimmons, surely you're joking, Gerald Schmimmons. This is a bunch of bullshumer. No, I say to you, this is after it was reported a major sighting over the skies of Las Vegas. I mean, there were thousands of people calling. There's thousands of people, thousands of people that saw this happen. And the family whose backyard it fell into, they called the police. And uh, Jerry has footage. Or Gerald Schmidt is what you want to call me. It's a scene straight out of the X-Files. Family in Las Vegas insisting something is out there after allegedly having a close encounter of the third kind. I swear to God, this is not a joke. One witness calling 911 after they say an object fell out of the sky and landed in their backyard. They're like nine foot, ten foot tall. They look like aliens to us. Big eyes. They have big eyes. The mysterious object that fell from the sky. Even the officers apparently saw that. The green glow of the alleged UFO is seen on this newly released body camera footage. I have butterflies, bro. Everyone saw a shooting star. Then these people say there's aliens in their backyard. So when that 911 call came in, less than an hour later, police were ready to believe it. It was like a big creature. A big creature? Yeah, like a long ten feet tall. Because I'm not going to BS you guys. One of my partners said they saw something fall out of the sky too, so that's yeah. why I'm kind of curious. Did you see anything land in your backyard? Or? But after a brief investigation of the yard, officers closed the case as unfounded. If those, if, those, if those nine foot beings come back, don't call us, all right? Deal with it yourself. That, I ain't dealing with that. <laughs> According to former intelligence officer David Grush, an alien crash landing isn't too far-fetched. Grush recently turned over documents to Congress claiming the U.S. government has a vast collection of vehicles that have non-human origin. Andrew Dimbert, ABC News, New York. Alrighty, thank you, Andrew. Here's what the story reads. Here's some actual body cam footage. Okay, okay, what's going on over there? Okay, lady, me, my dad, and my brother, we're working at a truck in our backyard, and we have a big lot outside, right, correct? Okay. We were working, and we just see in a corner of our eye, something fall down from the sky, and it was with light, and when it hit down, it was like a big impact, and we felt it. We felt like an energy, and then, and, then, and then we hear like a lot of footsteps near us, and then we have a big, a big, uh, equipment and, and we see and there's a there's like an eight foot person beside it and another one's inside and it has big eyes and looking at us and it's still there okay where is this on your property uh, uh in, in, in my backyard i swear to god this is not a joke this is actually we, so there's we, two, we terrify it. so there's two people or two subjects that are in your backyard correct and they're very large they're okay. like eight foot nine feet ten foot i don't know they're they look like they look like aliens to us big eyes they have big eyes okay. like like I can't explain it, and big our mouth. They're shiny eyes, and and they're not human. They're hundred percent they're not human. All right. Do you think they were bullshitting, or do you think the government? What the hell did I just do? Do you think the government covered it up? 
We just see in the corner of our eyes something fall down from the sky, and it was with lights. And when it hit down, there was like a big impact. We felt like an energy. And then we hear like a lot of footsteps near us, and then we have like big, big equipment. And we see there's an like an eight-foot person beside it, and there's another one's inside. And it has big eyes, and it's looking at us. That's what he said to the 9-11 dispatcher. They're very large. They're like eight foot, nine foot, 10 foot bunch. And they're not human. 100% they're not human. The caller adds, officers responded to the residents, but when they arrived, there wasn't shit there. Police said the officers conducted a preliminary investigation, but when we're unable to find anything, the case was closed as unfounded. Here's another video. And this is when you can see it actually in the sky. like eight to nine feet, no clothes, green. BSing you, do you see any, yeah, anything fall out of the sky? Yeah. We got a call, and one of my partners actually said that they saw it too. So, you happen to see any, uh, like I'm not BSing you, do you see any? Footage? No, like if you see any like little, well, not it's little in this couple, case. Um, they're, they're claiming down, uh, okay. eight to nine foot tall, green beings that were in their backyard sounds crazy but you never know uh these are your neighbors your fine neighbors over here uh but again i would normally discount it as probably not real yes uh i would normally discount it as nothing however um seeing as one of my partners said they saw it too only reason i'm actually investigating it further so if you guys see anything especially in your backyard please call 911 we'll come over okay if you see something say something the House Oversight Committee is in the early stages of preparing a hearing on UFOs in the wake of unconfirmed claims. The U.S. allegedly found crashed alien spacecraft, an account the Pentagon says is unsubstantiated. Of course it is, because they won't tell you about it. All right. Uh, Grush, that's the guy who's been saying that they are out there, I said he gave evidence of such a program to Congress and the offices of the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community. All right. Have you guys heard about this? A Florida mom, she left her children out in a car. She went inside to shoplift, and the car caught on fire. A Florida woman is accused of shoplifting while her car caught on fire in the parking lot with her children inside. Thankfully, Good Samaritans helped to rescue the kids. Police say security guards were watching 24-year-old Alicia Moore and the man for about an hour as they shoplifted at a Dillard's last month. When Moore left the store, she saw that her car was on fire. Police arrested her for outstanding warrants. She now faces additional charges of aggravated child abuse and arson, but has pleaded not guilty. One of the children suffered several first-degree burns. A Florida... It's horrible. I'm glad it wasn't worse. She was 24 years old. She parked her car outside of Dillard's on May 26. According to the rest report, she left the children inside 
Security saw more in an unknown man shoplifting in Dillard's, according to the report. After about an hour, more began leaving Dillard's to see her car engulfed in flames. Dropped the merchandise before she left the store. Bystanders at the mall saw the car and rescued the children inside. Trying to escape the flames. First degree burns for you that don't know is kind of like a mild sunburn. The children were taken to Orlando Health Arnold Palmer Hospital. One child suffered first-degree burns to her face and ears. I don't know how old the kids were. She was charged with aggravated child neglect for allegedly allowing children who could not care for themselves alone inside the car. Police said they don't know what caused the fire, but said it's unlikely the children would have been injured if Moore was not being negligent. She's being held on a $40,000 bond. And they filed a motion today asking more to be released without bail or to have the bail amount reduced. No word on where the children are now. Now, I told you that you may be able to help solve a murder. In Portland, there's a murderer, a serial killer on the loose. In the last three months, six women have been found dead all of them are under 40 and found within a hundred miles of each other in wooded rural places so tonight it begs the question are these cases connected and if so how correspondent jorge ventura joins us live now uh, jorge this certainly has to be concerning of course not only to police but to people who live there Brooke, that's right. Residents are very concerned as the city deals with this chilling mystery of six women who have been found dead and their bodies have been found within 100 miles of each other just in the past three months. Six women have been found dead in rural areas across the Portland metro. The remains of the first woman, Kristen Smith, were found on February 19th off of Southeast Faville Road on the borders of Portland and Happy Valley. Her kids love her more than she could ever imagine. Less than two months later, on April 8th, 32-year-old Joanna Speaks, a loving mother and sister, was found dead in rural Clark County. Her sense of humor is going to be probably missed the most. Definitely. She was so full of life. The manner of Speaks' death, the only one determined, blunt force trauma to the head and neck area. Then, just two weeks later, on April 24th, officials discovered two more bodies, 24-year-old Charity Lynn Perry and a woman who has yet to be identified. A week later, Bridget Webster's remains were found near Mill Creek in rural Polk County. And in the most recent case, 22-year-old Ashley Rio was found dead in a heavily wooded area near Eagle Creek on May 7th. In most of these cases, the manner or cause of death have not been determined, but Portland Police Bureau and multiple county sheriffs are investigating for any connections. It's definitely something they're looking at. Um, you know, they're aware that there's there seems to be some similarities there, but it's too soon for them to say that there's you know anything directly linked between these. While the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office says we are working with our partner agencies to determine if there are any connections between this case in Clackamas County and any others in the region. And the question that everyone wants the answer to, are these murders connected? And until that is answered, residents remain on edge. Brooke? Yeah, a lot of questions here. Thank you for... All right, moving right along. I got this story, and this is our final story tonight on Midnight Radio. And then we are going on to 8 O'Clock Rock with Mrs. Midnight. I'll put a link on that. I'm telling you some really good music after this. Fox 13 is learning new information about the two North Shore educators placed to leave.
All right, this story is crazy. There's a principal, a principal, a principal. They found guns in her desk, and she's known to be on cocaine. Following an incident with police that they say involved a gun and drugs. Today, Fox 13 News reporter A.J. Janival spoke with the school district, police, and reached out to the Griffin family. According to a letter Fox 13 News obtained, Sunrise Elementary Principal Michael Griffin has been on leave since May 9th. His wife, Moreland's Elementary Principal Megan Griffin, went on leave May 30th. The reason, school officials say, is connected to an incident that happened a month earlier outside a QFC grocery store. According to documents Fox 13 News obtained, Michael Griffin had a public mental breakdown outside the QFC on 161st Avenue in Redmond. Documents say at the time of the incident, Griffin had a loaded handgun on him, was arguing with a random woman in the parking lot, and police say they suspected him of being on cocaine, saying his eyes were darting around, his pupils were large, and he had white powder on his lips. According to the documents, police say Griffin made paranoid statements to officers about people spying on him and sex trafficking his wife. Documents say the incident happened in front of the Griffin's three children, including his 10-year-old son, who Griffin told to run away. The young boy was later found across the street. Documents say that Griffin gave up his handgun, but refused to let police into his car. He also told police he didn't have any other guns. But Griffin's brother, who documents say is a police officer, dropped off an assault rifle and a shotgun. He said belonged to Griffin. Griffin was put into protective custody and taken to the hospital. According to the documents, Megan Griffin told police in a written statement her husband's mental state began declining and his paranoia worsened when they started using recreational cocaine more frequently. On Friday, I went to the house listed as the Griffins. A man inside the home asked me through a window who I was. When I told him the reason I was there, he told me to get off his property. I also spoke with North Shore School District officials. They would not talk to me on camera, but provided a statement that reads in part, the district will continue investigating these serious matters and take appropriate action. Additionally, this information has been shared with the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction. Police tell Fox 13 News there is no active criminal investigation. The district says they removed both Michael Griffin and Megan Griffin as soon as they found out about each person's involvement. The district says Michael Griffin will remain on leave for the rest of the school year. All right. I'll put a link to all these stories we've been talking about and looking at tonight. They will be in the description below the video. Hey, if you're still watching and you haven't hit that thumbs up and you like some of the stories went over today. Why not just go ahead and give us a thumbs up? It helps this show to get out to other people. And also, you can hit that subscribe button and that bell. For God's sakes, help a poor miserable bastard out and just subscribe. That helps you join the conversation. Phone number is 325-261-0892. You can leave a voicemail message there, so and I will play it no matter what it is. And especially if it's hateful, I'll save it for New Year's, all right? If you hate me, I need to know about it so I can share it with the world. I'd like to thank our executive producers and producers for the show. If you'd like to become an executive producer or producer, $20 in the super chat, a sticker at our cash app, dollar sign, Midnight Radio 101, $20 or above will make you an executive producer for the next show we do. And anything below $20 will make you a producer. It keeps this show on the air. It keeps our radio station on the air. As of which, right after I 
get off right here. Mrs. Midnight will be on there. You can check out our, our radio station at midnightrad.io. That's our website, midnightrad.io. And you can listen to Mrs. Midnight do her show for two hours starting as soon as I get off here. It's called 8 O'Clock Rock, but we went over a bit today. Here's a link to it. And boom, I put the link there so you guys can check that out. You can push on that and be ready and load it up for when she comes on there. It's an awesome show. You're going to want to check it out. Thank you guys very much. I have a lot, a lot of good interviews booked, ready to come up. Um, I have FBI profilers. I have people who run their life with uh, video game addiction. I have a, 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 that and a whole lot more. You're going to want to subscribe if you haven't before. Good night. And until next time, all my best. Thank you for watching. Good night, radio. Mm-hmm.